It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney and a partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call us at 312-726-1243. Have you ever wondered about the origins of religious freedom in your state? Well, today I'll be speaking with Carl Esbeck, Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Missouri, where he taught classes for many, many years on civil procedure, constitutional law, religious liberty, and civil rights. Professor Esbeck has been an active promoter and defender of religious liberty throughout his career and has published widely in the area of religious liberty, church-state relations, and he is now publishing a new book called Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American States, 1776 to 1833. Uh, Professor Esbeck, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. That's a pretty uh, weighty topic that you're uh, raising here with this establishment. Um, Tell us a little bit more about first your work with religious liberty and then how that drove you to writing this book. Well, I've been publishing for uh, years uh, in American church-state relations, and I noticed early on that there simply was very little information on how disestablishment took place in the several states. Uh, Eleven of the first uh, 13 states had established churches and went through a disestablishment, and we also needed to cover three different Catholic disestablishments in Louisiana, Missouri, and Florida. Uh, There was an interesting story to tell in the state of Ohio, the first uh, state uh, carved out of the Northwest Ordinance, and uh, and Louisiana was the first state carved out of the Louisiana Purchase. And so there was just a a lot of uh, information that wasn't readily available except in obscure university uh, libraries, hard, hard to access, especially for the practicing lawyer and the judge that needed this kind of information so that he could or he or she could begin to know what establishment was and then what it meant to disestablish a religion in a given jurisdiction. Well, I think we need to uh, define terms at this point. So what is disestablishment? Well, uh, let me start with establishment. Establishment means the regulation of the church and the religion uh, that the church practices. So disestablishment is the legal deregulation of the church and that particular religion. So the process of disestablishment is mostly getting rid of laws which regulate the church so that the church can be free, in essence, a free operator. So from the American viewpoint, of course, disestablishment is a very good thing. So I'm reading the uh, pre-publication 
write up on your book, and it says in it, it is impossible to see the American constitutional heritage in the same way after reading this book. It shifts the paradigm. In what way does it shift the paradigm? Well, let me give you a, a couple of examples. These would be out of our first chapter, which is sort of an overview chapter of, of the individual state-by-state chapters that follow. Um, The conventional wisdom is that uh, religious liberty and in particular disestablishment was driven by the federal First Amendment as well as somewhat by the federal constitution proper. Uh, Our investigation found that that absolutely was not true. None of the state disestablishments, which we record, which are 21 different disestablishments, absolutely none of them looked to the First Amendment or the federal constitution, not one bit. So that's just one of those myths that we tried to explode. Uh, Another one is uh, for those who are a little bit more conversant with uh, American history, uh, the conventional wisdom is that the Commonwealth of Virginia was sort of the most important state. I was going to raise that. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's not true. Uh, our, our chapter authors in the other states uh, they they found that the the politicians and the activists who were driving disestablishment they never looked to, to Virginia. They had their own problems, and each was unique. And uh, the disestablishment process uh, was sort of a local affair based upon local personalities and uh, and the strength of various denominations. Uh, in that particular state. They weren't looking to Virginia at all. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker of the law firm of Malk and Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we're speaking with Professor Carl Esbeck, Professor of Law, Emeritus at the University of Missouri, and we've been speaking about his book, um, talking about disestablishment. So give us some of the the details for how disestablishment came to be in the United States. It's certainly an experiment. Um, And so give us a little bit of the historical process. What problems did they encounter in doing it? And and, uh, how did it evolve through the different states? Well, part of our findings is that each state has a unique story to tell, and it was more of a local affair than a national or regional affair. But there were obviously some common denominators. And so, of course, the strength of the existing state church uh, if it was weak or strong or something in between, that was a major factor. So, for example, the congregational establishments, mostly in New England, were very, very strong, and those were the last to be disestablished uh, in the 1820s, and the last one was 1833 in Massachusetts, whereas uh, some of the, you know, where, where there was very weak disestablishments, those fell rather rapidly uh, during the American Revolution. So so that was, you know, sort of a, a generality that, that we could draw. Then I want, I want to, you know, one of the unique 
things, uh, just to show you how, you know, it's kind of a state by state affair. Um, two of the original 13 states never had establishments. Of course, Pennsylvania, as you would expect, a Quaker state, uh, was one of those two. And yet, uh, our chapter on Pennsylvania shows that the law, uh, very, very much favored the Quaker outlook on on the world. And so the laws favored Quakerism. For, you know, one example is Quakers are pacifists, as is widely known. And in Pennsylvania, they absolutely refused to have militias. And people on the Western frontier suffered for that. So, so even in a state where there wasn't an establishment, there were religious preferences. Then, if, if I could hold up Ohio, of course, Ohio was the first uh, state to be carved out of the Northwest Ordinance. But when Ohio was set up, because it was set up by Puritans, um, uh, they they had glebes. And your listeners may may only be vaguely familiar with that term. A glebe is a piece of land given by the government to the church. The church then owns it and rents it out, and the rents go to the support of the church's religion. Ohio had uh, uh, sections and sections of glebes which supported the Protestant religion in Ohio up until the early 1960s. Yes, that's not a misstatement. Uh, 1960s. I practice in this area. I do a lot of real estate tax exemption, and uh, uh, we can never get away with that in, in the uh, in the administrative halls. But I, I'm I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking um, religion does have a great impact on our culture, and and so I'm stepping back a little bit. What was the impetus for making uh, disestablishment uh, the rule in the states? Um, yeah. In the 19th century, well, uh, but then we see in the 20th century, it's really the federal uh, disestablishment uh, through the First Amendment that uh, has really been in the forefront. So, so what well, was the impetus? Of course, the, the, the lawyers out there know that the, uh, the federal establishment clause wasn't applied by the Supreme Court to the states until 1947. So that's very much a mid-20th century thing. What drove disestablishment originally, state by state, if, if there was any one uh, spearhead power, it was religious people themselves saying, we want our church to be free. And in order to be free, we have to have this deregulation of religion and the church. And so, so one of the myths that's out there even today is that uh, religious liberty and disestablishment came about by secularists over against the resistance of religious people. Just the, uh, it wasn't the opposite, but it was religious people who were driving forward uh, disestablishment over against the state church. Of course, the state churches, which was the Church of England or the Puritan Congregational Church, they were, of course, wanting to hang on to their prerogatives. Coming up, we will talk further with Professor Espec, uh, Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Missouri, about our nation's current relationship between church and state and how that has evolved from the disestablishment clause. I'm Rich Baker. 
and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney at Malkin Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we're speaking with Professor Carl Asbeck. He is a professor of law emeritus at the University of Missouri, and he is the author of Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American States, 1776 to 1833. And we've been talking about the disestablishment taking place among the states and its various developments. Um, Professor, what I'd like you to do is, first of all, for our listeners, really spell out the difference between the federal um, First Amendment establishment provisions and, and what was going on with the state constitutions and why did the states even need their own? Sure. Well, of course, we're a federalistic republic, so we're an amalgamation of states. The federal constitution only applies to the federal government. And that includes the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was uh, ratified only to bind the federal government. So the First Amendment, which deals with disestablishment, that only bound the federal government. It wasn't until mid-20th century when the federal courts, in particular the U.S. Supreme Court, applied uh, many of the provisions of the Bill of Rights to bind the state governments as well as the federal governments. So in the 18th and 19th century, the states could pretty much do what they want consistent with their own state constitutions. And of course, many states had their own Bill of Rights, but it was different in certain respects than the federal Bill of Rights. So church-state relations was entirely a local state affair. Federal government didn't have anything to do with it. And uh, so each state had its own arrangement, and it was about a 55-year process for disestablishment to take place over the, the several states, the original 13 states, plus the early admitted states like Vermont and Maine and Kentucky and Tennessee and so on. And plus, there were Catholic establishments in Florida uh, in Louisiana and Missouri, and those Catholic establishments uh, uh, fell uh, when those areas, those territories, became part of the, the United States. All right, so so you you have to envision the disestablishment as is just a state affair, and the First Amendment had nothing whatsoever to do with it. The federal Constitution had nothing whatsoever to do with it. So with that, then what, what did uh, an establishment look like? Well, uh, it, it meant financial support by the government, of course. That's, everybody understands that. But it also was uh, that there were religious tests for voting and for holding public office. So you had to be of a certain religion or you didn't get a vote or you didn't get a run for public office. Uh, the established church uh, controlled uh, the government's aid to poor people and widows. The church uh, administered the vital records like births and deaths and who could get married. You could only get married uh, by a licensed minister of the state church, things like that. 
So as disestablishment took place, these various laws got repealed one by one, often in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, that's pretty extensive regulation when, when you think about it. And, uh, and you begin to see the motivation of uh, other um, churches that really wanted um, to have some freedom. And, and also there seems to be a, a somewhat of a stigma if you're not part of the established church then. Certainly if you're running for office, but, but otherwise probably in education and everywhere else as well. Yes, absolutely. If you weren't of the established church, you couldn't get a military commission. Uh, if you weren't of the established church, you couldn't get admitted to university. All those kinds of, of disabilities. Frankly, I've been practicing in this area for a very long time, and I just did not realize how extensive uh, the establishment provisions were. Um, so explain some of the uh, uh, similarities and differences between our state constitutions now uh, with regard to disestablishment. And do we ever look to the uh, state constitutions rather than the federal constitution for uh, protection? Uh, we do. Uh, mostly today, 21st century, we look to state constitutions if they're more restrictive of the church-state relation than is uh, the federal First Amendment, which, again, is now binding on states, but that's a relatively recent phenomena. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we do uh, occasionally look to uh, state constitutions when they're more specific than the federal constitution. And, but I would say, by and large, church-state lawyers today look first to the federal constitution and the First Amendment rather than the states. That's a complete turnaround from the way things were 200 and 225 years ago. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker of Malkin Baker, and we're talking today with Professor Carl Esbeck, Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Missouri. We've been talking about his book, Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American States, 1776 through 1833. And now we're looking a little bit of, of uh, what that might mean for us today, um, why this is not just a dusty old historic tome uh, that has no relevance today. So, so, Professor, tell us, why do we care about the Establishment Clause? What, what does it mean today? Well, one of the immediate takeaways is the current Supreme Court, in a case just decided last June, uh, the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association case, five of the nine judges, so that's the majority, have said, henceforth, for interpreting the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, we're going to look to the history of what an establishment was and the disestablishment process uh, at our founding and the new republic. So that means uh, we're going to be looking at the disestablishment process in those original states. Well, the one place you can go look for that uh, between uh, one cover uh, is this book. And uh, so, so it ought to be rather... useful. This is a timely publication, is it not? <laughs> so. it, it is, and I, I, you know, I have to say that this has been in process for seven or eight years, and so there 
timing is providential. Usually you try to time a book to come out or, or a movie to come out, you know, right when something has happened or something like this. It seems to me you've been very favorably blessed with, with the coming out of this book. Yeah, and of course I should say, you know, we've got historians, professional historians, uh, preparing these chapters for us. Yes. And we told them, you know, you tell the story that's in the historical record. You don't tell this story with particular contemporary issues in mind. You tell the story that was written 200 years ago and uh, let the chips fall where they may. So, you know, the book has integrity. We're not, no, nobody wrote these chapters having in mind uh, uh, an issue being litigated today. When I, when I um, think about this, what are the current parallels between the establishment of the early colonies and our current society? Even though the book's not written about that. Well, uh, this this case that I mentioned, American Legion versus American Humanist Association, uh, that involved uh, religious imagery in a state um, war memorial. It had a very large Latin cross, which we, of course, associate with Christianity. And when I say large, I mean it was... 40 feet above street level, so it was, it was quite large. It was, it was. And, uh, and, um, and, and so, you know, in our early history, we had the same sort of thing going on. For example, uh, in 1776, the, uh, the founding fathers were about the, coming up with a federal seal, you know, a governmental seal. Yeah. And Benjamin Franklin came up with a seal that had Old Testament imagery about uh, crossing the Red Sea because Moses parted the water, or God on, on Moses' behalf did that. But then Pharaoh's armies drowned, and Benjamin Franklin was analogizing that to, to, to England, who we were at war with. And Thomas Jefferson also came up with a, an alternative design which had religious imagery in it. Now, as we know, that's not the seal that was chosen, but but those seals didn't uh, weren't picked. Uh, they weren't rejected because of the religious imagery. That was not the problem. They just liked something better. Uh, you know, eagles uh, with uh, sure. arrows in their talons or something. But uh, it, so so there was a governmental seal with religious imagery, and they, everybody was fine with it. Well, let me do this. I think we have not nearly exhausted this subject, um, but we are out of time. Uh, could you quickly tell us how we can get a hold of your book? If you just uh, use your search engine and type in University of Missouri Press on their webpage, you can order it. And uh, it's a $45 prize. Professor Espec, thanks for being on the show. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at MalkBaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Rich Baker, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.